This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings some solace to your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in. And as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens and a temper that never tires and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Sue Monk Kidd author of The Book of Longings. I think as writers, we develop and evolve with our courage and our bravery as how far we're actually going to go out on that literary limb. It's a very important part of our development as writers. We'll be back with Sue Monk Kidd in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Sue Monk Kidd, author of four novels and four books of nonfiction. She began her career writing an autobiography that focused on her personal pain and spiritual awakening and eventually turned to fiction in her 40s. 
Her first novel, The Secret Life of Bees, spent more than two and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list and has sold more than 8 million copies worldwide. Other novels include The Mermaid Chair and The Invention of Wings. Sumont Kidd grew up in Sylvester, Georgia, and attended Texas Christian University. She now serves on the Writers' Council for Poets and Writers, Inc. Kidd's new novel is called The Book of Longings, which fictionalizes a story the Bible does not tell, that of the wife of Jesus. The main character of The Book of Longings is Anna, a rebellious and ambitious woman living in Galilee who encounters Jesus one day at a market just as she's about to be married to a man she despises. As fate intervenes, Anna becomes Jesus' wife and leaves her wealthy home, accompanied by her widowed aunt, to live in Nazareth with Jesus' family. She trades an environment of wealth where she was allowed to read and write for a rural and simple and poor life. Meanwhile, Anna's brother Judas is leading a resistance movement against the Roman occupation of Israel. The Book of Longings focuses on Anna's growth from teenager to old woman and the challenges she overcomes as a woman, a wife, and a writer. We began the discussion with Sue Monk Kidd answering this question. In your author's note, you said that you had thought about this story, I think it was about 14 years ago, and let it go at the time, and then came back to it. Why was the time then not right, and why did you feel like it was ripe now? Well, I'm not sure I know exactly how to answer that question because it's kind of a mystery to me, too, um, where these ideas come from and what is the time that we're to take them up and make them into something real. It did come to me almost in a fleeting way about 15 years ago, and it was mostly that I sure would like to read a book like this myself. I'd like to read a story about the fictionalized wife of Jesus. And I was thinking about what Toni Morrison said, you know, so famously that if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written, then you have to write it. And I did think about that book, but I wasn't ready. I, I think in numerous ways. First of all, I probably didn't have the um, courage at that time to do it. It was a very intimidating idea. And I think as writers, we develop and evolve with our courage and our bravery as how far we're actually going to go out on that literary limb. It's a very important part of our development as writers. And this was um, earlier in my career as a novelist. And I I thought, okay, maybe I'm not ready for that. But I can't say that it was urgent feeling in me either. Um, I'm a big proponent of really trying to listen to our authentic voice inside that tells us uh, what we're supposed to be writing or the images that come to us. What do they mean? How do we relate to our imagination? So That was important, but I can't say that it was urgent for me or that compelling at the time. It was just like um, a bird landed on my head, and I thought that was interesting for a little while, and then it flew away. Now, what was curious about this is that it probably never really flew away. It just um, sort of tucked in somewhere inside of me and, um, and waited 
and maybe uh, it waited for the right moment, and maybe I um, became ready to write it. I, I'm not really sure how all that played out in me. I just know that the time finally became right. When you mentioned earlier that you didn't have the courage, when you think about that, does that have to do with having the courage to just take on this voice that was such a, would have been, you know, whether she existed or not, um, a very powerful voice in history that was not, and that there's the responsibility of taking on that voice? Or was the fear also around maybe the cultural implications of even writing a story like this? It was definitely both, and probably then some. I felt like there would be a great deal of backlash around this idea at the time. And not that I was new to controversy with my writing, because I had written a memoir around that time that... um, called The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which was really taking on my religious tradition and talking about my feminism. And it got a lot of backlash, and I had learned a great deal about how to respond to that internally and externally. Um, So it wasn't so much, I guess, a a fear of that. It's just, do I, am I really ready for that? And maybe not yet, or, but some of it was my ability to really um, capture this voice, not just my character, but who wants to take on putting words in the mouth of Jesus? I mean, that was kind of daunting to think about how I would write his character. So it was just a lot of um, multi-layered thoughts <laughs> doubts and worries that were that kind of whirled around the idea initially but when it returned to me all of that was gone and I mean I did have you know two or three seconds of real trepidation about it once I decided to write the story but it quickly passed and I think that is just simply realistic and understanding that I have taken on a topic that um, people are going to, well, maybe they're going to take issue with it. Because you've, you've written nonfiction about your own spiritual journey and how that relates to faith and religion and, and finding your feminist path through that, even though you were writing fiction, did this feel like a continuation of some kind of journey? Not consciously, but I'm sure that's right. Um, Consciously, what I wanted to do and was always about was telling a really good story. That's what I always want to do. I just want to um, write a great story that people fall in love with and are kind of swept into. That's my, I mean, that's the novelist in me, I guess. I'm a storyteller, but I care about two things in this regard. Um, narrative and language. I love them so much. I can't tell you how much I love inventing narrative and how much I love words themselves. And so those are the two things that most matter to me, I guess. But underneath that, I suppose my worldview, my experiences did indeed make an appearance (laughs) in this novel. I did have a feminist spiritual quest, very 
like my character did. I went searching for divine feminine imagery, like my character. Um, we both have an, a need, a deep need to write the stories of women and to give voice to ourselves and to other women. So there are similarities here. I can't deny that. So I probably was drawing on my own worldview, um, my own experience in history more than I even realized. So your character is named Anna, and she becomes the wife of of Jesus. But until she marries him, her fate is similar to many women in, in Galilee at that time. She's young. She's ultimately, her fate is up to her parents. She was set to be married to someone else that was a marriage she didn't want. She's Jewish, but not really observant. Um, there's a lot of politics at play then. So how did you begin to alight upon Anna and her circumstances? And how did you match the research with just writing a good story on the page? Anna appeared in the very beginning for me. The whole book started with, with her. I think she probably is the inspiration for the book, too. She came to me in my imagination one afternoon in October while I was reading an article about this uh, fragment of a papyrus, ancient papyrus, that had some reference in it to the wife of Jesus. And I, I suddenly remembered this story I wanted to write 15 years earlier that was sort of compelling but not that much for me. And then I, I could almost picture her you know, this kind of tall um, young woman with crazy, wild, curly hair. And I, I thought, I, and she even had a name at the time, Anna. So she was made an appearance very early on. So so much of this emerged from her, I guess, and the, the need to want to give her a voice because if she existed at all in reality, a, a wife of Jesus, which I have no idea whether that's true or not, but if she did, she would be very silenced woman, maybe the most in history. So I just wanted to give her a voice. And that's really how it started. But developing her through the book was, um, well, kind of a daily thing. I had to read so much. I had to do so much research a whole 14 months before I really even wrote the first word of the book. It was far more than I had imagined. And I had to learn about women at that time. And they lived just in a world where they were largely silenced and invisible and had very restricted lives. And so in counter to that, I wanted to create a young woman, first of all, that could strive against that who could strive for identity and fullness of self and independence in this male world. And the second thing I knew I needed to do is if she was going to marry Jesus, she needed to have her own magnitude and power and passion to, to meet him to, uh, fully and to kind of be a real partner to him, which is what I wanted so um, I just gave, I imbued her with, um, you know, traits 
from the beginning, like she was unusually gifted and brilliant and uh, precocious, and she was rebellious and daring, and all of these things were kind of her superpower, and then her longings emerged out of those things. Um, I'll say one more thing about that. Um, motivation is a huge thing for me in in my creation of the narrative, and she needed to strive desperately for something, and it needed to have high stakes, and it needed to matter. And it really grew out of who she is as a character, those things I was just talking about. So if you've got all of that largeness in yourself, as Anna calls it, her largeness, um, then it needs to go somewhere. And her longing was to bring it forth. And then there are, of course, going to be all kinds of forces that counter that. So that's how, for me, the story of Anna really began to unfold. I think some of your inspiration also came from some Gnostic manuscripts that were found in 1945, and among them was one called The Thunder Perfect Mind, which is believed to have been written by a woman. And I believe you used some of the lines from it in this book. Yes. I discovered this Gnostic text uh, many years ago, and sort of uh, fell in love with it. I've read it many times, and it never, I mean, it's kind of uh, mind-bending to read this, but it's provocative, and I began to look at the history of it, and somehow in the um, writing of this story, it surfaced somehow, and I think it would, you know, some people think that, um, that I, I've heard talk about this, say that I, cr- I gave her a nickname Thunder because I thought she would eventually write The Thunder Perfect Mind, but it was just the opposite of that, actually. She had this nickname from the beginning, Little Thunder. And it was later, because of the nickname, that I remembered this Gnostic text, Thunder Perfect Mind. And I thought, how interesting. Um, let me l- read that again. And as I read it, the idea struck me just really hard that what if she authored it and they don't know who authored this text they believe scholars believe it was most likely a woman the time frame fit perfectly the geography fit perfectly and so that's what I did and it just simply um, as I said in the author's note just made me happy to be able to um, give her that authorship there was a line, I believe it was in that, that she was writing during the novel. She was writing a psalm to Sophia, which is kind of the incarnate or, or vision of the female God. And she writes these lines in there. I am the whore and the holy woman. I am the wife and the virgin. And to me, this encapsulated the whole book of this duality and what the public sees and who she is and what women can be, and how they're thought of. Yes, this is the genius of the Thunder Perfect Mind, really, is that it encompasses this understanding of women that has has just simply not been part of the dialogue in history at all. You know, 
women were supposed to be good women. Good women did their duty. They did their chores. They had babies, preferably male ones. This was how it kind of went. And then here comes this, well, let's call it a gender-bending kind of portrait in this text that um, throws all that up in the air. And then it it makes people stop and pause and think about, well, who are women and what are they about? Can they be all of these things? It's very encompassing to think about being both virgin and whore, you know, or to have these opposites, these dualities in ourselves. It, it expands how we understand ourselves and and women. All the, there's a line in the Thunder Perfect Mind that's something like, all the women who live in me, all the women who live in me. That's just an amazing line to me. And it's one that turns up in the novel. We have so many women living inside of us. And the point, I suppose, is to free so much of of our concepts of ourselves and proclaiming ourselves. And there's just a lot of wisdom in that text that causes us to rethink things. It sounds like one of the things that you were really contemplating was did Jesus have a wife? I think there was no reference either way in the Bible. There was potentially one reference in some documents found later. And one of the things that you were talking about was, did he just not have one? Or was this woman's role during the time that they had to be silenced either way? And even if she was there, she would get no real estate in any of the stories anyway. And I wonder if, if, maybe writing this, you came out with a more certain view of it or if it raised more questions or did it answer any for you, whether they're true in terms of fact or not? I honestly am on the fence about it. I do tend to, if I had to lean one way or the other on the fence, maybe I'm leaning toward thinking he probably did have a wife. And the reason I'm on the fence is because there's just no evidence. There's only intuition. My intuition tells me he probably married. And that was because of just the whole religious and cultural milieu at the time and what was expected. And it was highly expected for men to marry at a certain age, usually around 20 or so. And I began to think, well, let's imagine Jesus in those unknown years where there is nothing written about him. What was he like as an adolescent at 18, at 22? Did he marry like the Jewish ethic required? And did he um, have a wife at some point? And did she die in childbirth? Now, that is not what happens in my novel. But it's a plausible thought. And then later, he has his public ministry. She is not around. There are all kinds of ways to intuitively imagine this. Frankly, I don't know. But I thought that was really not the point for me. The point was imagining it. There is great power in in reimagining something. And I I just feel like if we can reimagine this, 
then we can find new ways to think about our present and our future and how it impacts us, this alternate history, so to speak. So it's worth reimagining for lots of reasons, mainly the one uh, that might answer the question, how would the world be different if Jesus had married and had a wife who was really part of this whole narrative? Well, the world would be very different. And as you think about that, you begin to realize maybe it's worth going on that journey of imagining it so that we can um, maybe rearrange how we think about some things today. So in the story itself, Anna is from a wealthy family. She, against many odds, and especially when you see how her life turned out when she became marriageable and how her parents married her off to someone she didn't love, and she always had a difficult relationship with her mother, but her father let her learn to read and write when she was young. He supported that. He paid for it. And when she eventually meets Jesus and and marries him, which is really for love and which is really out of the ordinary back then, she goes to his home and he is not as wealthy. So I'm curious about how you wanted to create this wealth for her, you know, how you grounded her in that story and a little bit about why envisioning her her world as as wealth and and going to less wealth and, and why that was important for you I think mostly that was a narrative uh, device I did um, I wanted their worlds to be very different it's always the fish out of water tail that is interesting to me and to I think give them this wide diverse place between them that they they have to meet somewhere in the middle of this. His relative poverty, living in this kind of backwater village in Galilee, and she's living in this palatial house in Sepphoris, the capital, the rather sophisticated city at the time, with a father who has ties to the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas. So they're very different worlds, and that was interesting to me. It made it more complex how they would manage to get together, um, which was a feat indeed to pull off for me. But I also liked the idea that when she finally goes to Nazareth to live with Jesus' family, she is at a loss of what to do and how to do it. I mean, she doesn't know anything about how to weave or dye cloth or cook or any of those chores that women are so responsible for. And that set up all kinds of interesting conflicts with her sister-in-law, with whom she is at odds. So it, it helped to create conflict and a little more complexity in the story, I think, was the main reason. But I also needed them to have these ties to Herod Antipas, and that was a way to do it, too. And she was the sister by adoption of Judas. And so that relationship was really important throughout her life, very important to, to Jesus. That was um, a real lark for me. <laughs> I was not intending to do that in the beginning. I wanted Judas to be part of this story. I didn't anticipate that he would become as prominent a character as he did. 
but I wanted to show his humanity as well as that of Jesus, that they were the human side of all of this, and Judas had his own reasons and motivations as as wrong as they may have been, these this politically motivated reasons for betraying Jesus. I wanted to show that um, that process, that that part of the narrative kind of as a subplot. But how do I bring Judas into it? So I sat there just trying to figure that out, and I realized that if he was part of Anna's family, that would solve my problem. It just felt like a rather daring thing to do, to make him part of her family. But I decided, what the heck, let's make him her adopted brother. And when I did kind of make that leap, So many things fell into place for me for how this could evolve as as a subplot in this story. They were very close, and they were both rebels in their own way. I mean, he was was a zealot. He was not particularly religious, per se. He wasn't really fighting for religious freedom for the Jews. It was more of a political stance, And, and her fight was really for the voice of women. They both had very passionate needs. And Judas, he also had a, a kind of psychological, if, if you will, motivation. I mean, there was in history a terrible revolt in Sepphoris around 4 BCE, uh, in which they, the people of Sepphoris revolted rebelled against the Roman occupation, and they came in and literally wiped the city out, burned it, took the men, and crucified them in a long line along the road, and sold off people into slavery. When I read about this part of history, um, I thought, well, there goes Jesus' parents. Um, I gave him a kind of deep emotional reason to hate Rome that was beyond the political. So it was personal, and it grew into uh, almost fanatical political stance for him. So he he had his reasons, and they became and they needed to be that fanatical in order to justify in his own mind what he did. Anna was also she was kind of like the collector of the women who lived on the fringes. She was closest to her aunt, whose name was Yeltha, who had an abusive husband who died, but the the community was convinced that she killed him, and she was basically exiled from Egypt and lived with Anna and her father as less than human on some levels except to Anna. They didn't treat her very well. And then she makes friends with Tabitha, who was raped, and so she was really almost like a, an organizer and lover of women who didn't fit into the traditional roles. Yes, she was. And I loved this about Anna, actually. she was, I loved your phrase, a collector of women. That's exactly what she was. And she gathered them slowly Uh, throughout the narrative until some culminating moment at the end of the story that I won't give away. There, there were women and this is, I mean, frankly, this is a big theme in my work, this idea of a community of, of women 
the bonds of women um, and how these bonds can potentially transform us or bring us into um, some more well-healing, empowerment, Um, just the whole nature of that. And so Anna in this story ends up with um, this little group of women. And that, I, I, I loved that idea and it surfaces very strongly in The Secret Life of Bees, my first novel. And I said, you know, I think it, sisterhood is even more prevalent in this novel, um, The Book of Longings, than in The Secret Life of Bees. And that is saying a lot. I think amidst that, you know, what she was doing by having this community of misfit women that are really finding their voices was also really about questioning the way things were politically and also, I guess, biblically in terms of what what your role was under under God. But I found that the book also had these fatalistic questions about what was God's work and what wasn't. And when something happened to Anna and Jesus after they were married that was very devastating, she wondered because after that point, Jesus became more rebellious. Was was it because of that tragedy or would it have happened anyway? So these questions of fate were very large in Anna's voice. Mm, yes, I think so. And it's not something I, that's an interesting question for me because it's not been put to me quite like that. But my thought was that um, Anna evolved And so did Jesus throughout this story. And they came to a kind of reckoning about not only their own place in the world and what they were here for, but who is God and what is she or he or it to me? And there was a real grappling with that in both. Now, now I portrayed the character of Jesus as... um, very de- devout in, in most many ways, but also dissident in many ways, an individual and who had a, a, an evolving vision of what the world would be like if it was, in his words, the kingdom of God. That was, he was so about, about that. And what would it be like? So I envisioned it by interpreting his vision as um, a place of inclusion and compassion, justice, that kind of thing. And so he, he had to evolve, and there were questions that I think did have to do with fate. Would he listen to that? Would he not? Would he abandon Anna? Would he not? And Anna, who is, of course, the main character in this story. It's really her story throughout, even though Jesus is certainly a prominent character in it. Um, She is trying to understand who is God to me. Now, one of my favorite things about Anna was something she said to Jesus at an early meeting. She said they were talking about their religion and she said, can we not free God? 
And I remember when I wrote that, I thought, what, what am I saying? What does this mean? And I realized this was her work, in a way, was to free herself of concepts that, of God that were very limiting. Now, that is a very powerful individual thing to do, um, to give ourselves this independent choice to choose and to recognize maybe that this voice of the divine is in us and that we can trust that. So in a way, it is some conflict between the ecclesiastical and the individual. She also had some encouragement from her aunt, Yaltha, who's definitely had been through the ringer with society and how she was treated and has come to believe her own order of the universe. And it was with her and through her, I wouldn't call it magic necessarily, but she had this um, bowl called an incantation bowl. And it definitely inspired a sort of magical thinking, but it was it was really under the guise of prayer and manifesting the things that you believe in. And I was wondering about the role of, of sort of magic in these biblical times. I think it was um, more prevalent than um, we realized, perhaps, by reading scripture. I came across in my research um, a kind of mindset that existed about writing and words. There was this belief that if you wrote a curse, um, it had actual power. The power of this curse resided in the words themselves. If you wrote a blessing, those words were animated somehow with with, um, the spirit of something. So they believed in the aliveness of words written down, not just thought, but written down. Um, Of course, as a writer, I love that. And in one place in the novel early on, I have Anna describe her words as little ink temples. That's how she thought of it, because that really was a cultural understanding that God can reside in that. Some kind of divine animating spirit can reside in it. So yes, that I, I think that is a kind of magical thinking. I tried to downplay that a little bit in the story uh, with Anna. She didn't totally fall for it, but she was a product of her, of, of her understanding of that. Does that make you think maybe about the little magic of this book? I mean, do you think about that in modern day of like what your book could be? I mean, obviously it can't manifest history, but it could manifest something. Well, one wishes for it to manifest something for sure that is um, positive for the reader. I, I guess I would mostly hope that this, the words in these books, um, the story itself would help, well, not help, would give readers an opportunity to have a conversation with themselves about their own longings, their own largeness, and how to bring that out into the world, uh, particularly for women who 
want a seat at the table, who want to have a voice in the world, who want to leave their dent in this world, like Anna did. I, I would love it if a conversation could go on inside of them about that. So that's one thing. I would love the story if it could manifest something. Um, just a soulful experience um, would be something I would welcome for the reader, just to feel, feel Anna, have a felt experience, an empathetic participation with her and with women and, and what is missing in religion from the standpoint of, of the feminine or the presence of women or the roles of women. Um, Yalfa, <laughs> I loved writing this character. She is probably the most unique character I've written, at least I think so. And she is Anna's lifeline and her um, mentor, um, mother figure, midwife. I mean, just as in spiritually midwifing her. And I I loved writing this relationship between the two of them. Yalta was, um, she was fierce. She, her role was to encourage Anna's audacities, as they call them. And she did that beautifully, I thought, uh, with her uh, words and her life and her wisdom. And at one point in the story, which was one of my favorite pieces to write, there's a scene between the two of them in which Yalta says to Anna, my largeness has been to bless your largeness. And that's that's her gift to Anna. And can you talk about the title? Yes. um, I have a quirky thing about me, which is I have a hard time writing anything until I have a title. I think I'm a little weird that way, but I love to have that set because I can then write somehow toward that theme or that um, that I've laid out. Uh, I always remembered something that I read probably way over 10 years ago that John Irving said, and I probably won't get this exactly right, but and, and I can't remember the source, but I think it was probably in the Paris Review. He said that a good beginning will, will suggest knowledge of the whole story. And so that's really what I was trying to, to do, to hint at the whole story from the very, very beginning. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Um, I knew immediately what this passage would be. It is from The Awakening by Kay Chopin, which is probably the most influential book I ever read. I read it first at 19, and I've read it numerous times since. Um, And I'm going to read a passage at the very end that struck me, well, in the heart, I guess. When she was there beside the sea, absolutely alone, she cast the unpleasant pricking garments from her, and for the first time in her life, she stood naked in the open air at the mercy of the sun, 
the breeze that beat upon her and the waves that invited her. How strange and awful it seemed to stand naked under the sky. How delicious. She felt like some newborn creature opening its eyes in a familiar world that it had never known. The foamy wavelets curled up to her white feet and coiled like serpents about her ankles. She walked out. The water was chill, but she walked on. The water was deep, but she lifted her body and reached out with a long, sweeping stroke. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. She went on and on. She thought of Léonce and the children. They were a part of her life, but they need not have thought they could possess her body and soul. Exhaustion was pressing upon her, overpowering her. Goodbye, because I love you. Do you want to share about why you chose that? I think when I first read this book, um, I was amazed at her search for identity, for independence, for freedom, and, and the way that she went about it. And it was strikingly tragic to me how it ended, that in the culture of her time, which was the late 19th century, um, she she would be that desperate to um, have her own life separate from this domestic world and motherhood. And while that is vitally important, it had totally snuffed out her own life and her own creative instincts and need for some separateness and individuation. And I never... I never got over it. Um, When I wrote The Mermaid Chair, which is a story about a woman in her 40s who is trying to find herself and belong to herself, there is a scene that reimagines this scene. It's a little alternate history of this. And she goes out into the water, but she returns belonging more having married herself somehow so yeah it's made a big impact on me and in some ways made me a feminist can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft well the hardest parts of a novel for me are always the beginnings always always and i'm going to read just the opening paragraph of the book of longings which I must have written um, or not written many, many times. I am Anna. I was the wife of Jesus, Ben Joseph of Nazareth. I called him beloved, and he, laughing, called me little thunder. He said he heard rumblings inside of me while I slept, a sound like thunder from far over Nahal Zippery Valley or even farther beyond the Jordan. I don't doubt he heard something. All my life, longings lived inside me, rising up like nocturnes to wail and sing through the night. That my husband bent his heart to mine on our thin straw mat and listened 
was the kindness I most loved in him. What he heard was my life begging to be born. So that's the opening of the novel. It wasn't there initially. I wrote um, the opening probably, oh my goodness, I don't know how many times. And this paragraph was not there. It started rather with a scene in which she um, has this incantation bowl. The first draft of it had to do with her passively writing her prayer in it. And while I liked it okay, I knew it wasn't quite right. So it occurred to me that it was far too passive. So I rewrote it as it is and after about 25 times, I think, and had more action going on, something more active happening, climbing up a ladder onto the roof of the house with this mysterious bundle and discovering this bow. So I thought that was more engaging for the reader, but I still wasn't satisfied. And so I realized what I lacked was this moment of kind of a, I don't know the word, maybe literary preamble or something, where Anna steps onto the literary page and announces herself very boldly, as I was saying earlier. And I just wanted her to say, I am Anna. I was the wife of Jesus. And here's what I'm about. And that, in a way, in, includes the whole of the story right there that um, beginning that is a seed from which the entire story can sprout. And the reader knows, well, from that, who she is, what she's, what her motivation is, what her longing is. And so it took a while. I think probably um, the, the largest amount of time, I might spend months just getting the opening scene. I'm slow that way. <laughs> when you did finally get it, do you end up feeling when something is so right, do you feel it in your body as much as your mind or just your mind? I absolutely feel it in my body and my mind. It is such a strange knowing. And I write um, probably in a way that is not taught to <laughs> to write. I write and revise as I go. I cannot seem to continue on until I get that feeling you're referring to, which is simply this knowing that comes over you that you just know inside, okay, that's it. I'm done with that. And I can move on to the next piece of uh, the story. I, it's hard to describe that feeling, except it's maybe it's just an intuitive thing again of just knowing that it's it's good to go and um, it is in your body I mean something I mean we just relaxes where do you write I write in um, a room I've always called my study though there's more writing going on than studying in here it's a small room upstairs and it's lined with um, a whole wall of bookshelves so I can keep all my books out and I mean it's like I chart my life by these books it's like a little autobiography up here I feel like oh that was my 
phase where I read C.G. Jung, and this was my phase where I read about Buddhism, and this was my phase of this, and here's all my fiction, and they reflect something about us. Um, so, and there's a, well, I'm sitting here now, and there's a huge window that overlooks a stand of trees, so I have a lot of light in here. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I was taking a boxing class, believe it or not, before social distancing quarantined me. So I hope to do that again. But it was a perfect escape from the sitting in solitude for hours and hours writing. And I loved um, just the energy of it. But now it's, it seems like, well, I'm doing whatever exercise I can, which is kind of a uh, a routine, but I hang out with my husband and our dog Barney um, in the evenings, and I read and I draw, and I watch some television. That's it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My daughter Anne, who is a writer herself, and I think a really marvelous writer. But when I gave her my first novel, The Secret Life of Bees, um, she was in her 20s, and she wanted to be a writer. It was kind of newly discovered for her. And I was thinking (laughs) that I was giving her my work to read chapter by chapter and that it might help her. Well, it turned out it helped me far more than it helped her, I think, because she turned out to be this really excellent reader and gave me Um, great feedback. And so every book I have written since, I give it to her chapter by chapter, and she's my first reader, and in many cases, my only reader until I finish the book. And um, she comes, sometimes she gives me an idea or two that find their way into the book. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, that's such a tough one. Um, You know, we can say these things like, well, I try not to take it personally, but it's ridiculously hard not to because writing is so personal and it comes from within us. Uh, It's part of us. I mean, we tend to think of it almost as an extension of ourselves, but I just strive to put it in context. One of the first rejections I ever got was when I first started writing And I was a complete novice. I was learning. And I wrote a little piece, and I sent it to a magazine. And they sent back a rejection slip on which was handwritten three words. This is useless. I have never gotten over that one either. (laughs) But I think sometimes um, we value ourselves as writers by those things, and that's not a good path to take. Um, We are not really our work, so there is some need to separate that out. And to remember what matters most, I suppose, that there really is this um, authentic voice in us, and we have to listen to it, and we're learning, and we have to be kind to ourselves about all that. I mean, the truth is that piece probably was useless. But that was a pretty harsh way to tell, uh, you know, a hopeful new writer. 
and I think we have to be kind in our rejections and kind in, to ourselves in receiving them and just be persistent as hell because that's what it takes in spite of that. And that just requires an enormous belief in ourselves. And so we just do our best to, to do that. What is your favorite word? Well, it changes all the time, of course, but at the moment, my favorite word happens to be longings. <laughs> I, when I was writing about longings in this novel, I thought about what a beautiful word that is. Just lyrically, I like it. it but more, more importantly, it, it evokes um, powerful emotions, I think, like love and yearning and desire, some kind of hunger or need, and it's a soulful feeling in all of that for me, and um, I think that our souls speak eloquently through longings, and so I just, um, I've adopted that as my favorite new word. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm deeply appreciative of of our conversation and, and you taking the time to have it. Well, it was a pleasure to talk with you, so thank you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Sue Monk Kidd, author of The Book of Longings. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Geraldine Brooks, author of the novel The Secret Chord, a retelling of the story of King David. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 250 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 25 minutes collectively of interviews with Vanessa Hua, Sue Monk Kidd, and Mary South, plus writing tips from these same authors. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anne Enright, Tara Shea Nesbitt and Lori Gottlieb. Thank you again to my patrons for making this interview happen. The support of my patrons makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>